Brothers, good morning, and welcome to the Tuesday morning men's Bible study at PCPC. I'm Robbie Higginbottom. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to be spending this morning with you. I want to remind you that because of spring break, we're not having class next week, so feel free to meet as a group if you wish, but we don't have a new lesson next week, and we will see you again in two weeks. So as we get started this morning, we're continuing in our series, The King's Stories, and our, our lesson today is on the parable of the rich fool. I want to start by sharing something from John Grisham's novel, The Testament, which opens with the last words of a rich man uh, who is dying. And as he faces the prospect of basically being separated from all his possessions, these are his last thoughts. He says, down to the last day, even the last hour now, I'm an old man, lonely and unloved, sick and hurting and tired of living. I'm ready for the hereafter. It has to be better than this. My assets exceed $11 billion. I own silver in Nevada and copper in Montana and coffee in Kenya and coal in Angola and rubber in Malaysia and natural gas in Texas and crude oil in Indonesia and steel in China. My companies own companies. My money is the root of my misery. I had three families, three ex-wives who bore seven children, six of whom are still alive and doing all they can to torment me. I'm estranged from all the wives and all the children. They're gathering here today because I'm dying and it's time to divide the money. Now men, this sounds dramatic because it's in a novel, but this is life. If we die before Christ returns, this will be our experience too. No matter how much we have, when we die, we leave it all behind. We can't take it with us. And those who are left behind have to figure out how to divide it up. So in Grisham's novel and in our passage today, those who are left behind care deeply about the division and someone almost always ends up feeling cheated. You may have experienced this in your own life. You've certainly heard about it or seen it in other families. My wife Anne and I have seen it affect both branches of our extended family tree. But do we ever slow down enough to ask, why? Why is this such a big deal? Why do we care so much about getting our fair share? Whatever that means. And what would Jesus do if he were drawn into this kind of debate? Now, our passage today from Luke 12 actually speaks to all these questions, but we don't always like the answers that we find in God's word. The parable of the rich fool is as relevant today as it ever was. So follow along now as we read our passage, Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he, Jesus, said to him, man, who made me? a judge or arbitrator over you. And Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? 
so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these men who have come together to wrestle with this morning. Jesus, thank you for this story that pierces our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to see and would you help us somehow to love what we see? Save us from the folly that's in all of our hearts and give us life in you. Today, if we hear your voice, may we not harden our hearts. Break us and remake us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing I want us to see this morning from the passage is the source of life. Consider the setting of this parable. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Notice this man just walks up and interrupts Jesus. <laughs> what he has to say is, is more important than the teaching that Jesus has been doing. And it doesn't seem like he's heard anything that Jesus has been saying. He can't even call his brother by name. And he's basically barking orders at Jesus. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Jesus calls him man, which is the address to a stranger, not a friend. And Jesus rejects this notion that he should be the judge for this case. This is not why Jesus came, and he's not going to be distracted from his mission. So rather than respond to the man's request, Jesus actually gives the crowd a warning and a principle. It says, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So the warning is to watch out for all kinds of greed. And the word used here, translated greed or covetousness, refers to our lust for more than our share, for more than God has given us. Greed is this insatiable hunger for more than we really need, and obviously more than we have. And it's as old as the Garden of Eden. Didn't Adam and Eve lust for more than God had given them? And he gave them so much. They didn't just covet God's gift. They coveted God's throne. They wanted to be God. And if you think about it, so do we. And then the danger of coveting is enshrined in the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's actually the last of the ten, forming this really inter these interesting bookends where you shall have no other gods before me and you shall not covet. And it's the number of things we covet that is such clear proof that we do have other gods. Isn't it interesting? We can acknowledge so many of our sins and struggles, but who among us has ever confessed to the sin of greed? It seems to be that sin that everyone commits and no one admits. And it's interesting to think that Jesus actually talks more about greed than something like sexual sin. So we're wise to really think about and heed his warning. Greed's not a respecter of persons or portfolios. We can have a lot or we can have a little and still be greedy for more. And it doesn't matter what we have or what we want because our hearts can really attach themselves to just about anything. And we love it and we worship it and then we spend our lives to try to get it and possess it. Now in God's word, greed is a dead end street. In Ecclesiastes 5.10, we read, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity or meaningless. It's not really easy to see this in short periods of time, but over years and decades, our greed and discontent can be striking. 
So when I was 23 and teaching at Providence Christian School, I was excited about what I was making as a first year teacher. But after a year or two, I wanted more. And I can see that same temptation through these years of serving at PCPC from being a youth resident to the high school director to a college pastor to the connections pastor. If you had told the 23-year-old version of myself where I would be now, I might have passed out back then. But today, I'm tempted, maybe like you, not to be grateful or generous, but actually to be greedy for more. I can look around at other pastors and, and wonder, am I getting my fair share? And then I can look around even in my family and see that my dad's a successful dentist and my brother-in-law's a professional baseball player. And am I content with what God has given me? And are you content with what God has given you? One author writes, greed is a fat demon with a small mouth and whatever you feed it is never enough. So in, in Isaiah 55, the Lord asks us, why do you spend your money? for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Greed is a dead-end street, and the Lord commands us to put it to death. In Colossians 3.5, we read, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So that's the warning, and Jesus underlines it with a strong principle. He tells us that life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. There's a whole stream of questions that we ask that flow from the belief that life is about having the most stuff. In this value system that we have, everything has a dollar sign attached to it. So think about it. Have you ever asked these questions or wanted to? Things like, what do you do? Maybe you wouldn't ask, but what is your net worth? Where do you live? Or where else do you have a home? <laughs> what do you drive? What do your kids drive? Where do your kids go to school? Where do you go on vacation? Oh, you don't go anywhere on vacation for spring break? You can see kind of where all these questions are leading. But how many things do we value that we can't really put a price tag on? How much of that is there in our lives? You think about this. No one tends to be famous just because they're poor. But plenty of people in our world are famous just because they're rich. There are entire reality TV shows that are dedicated to just feeding our fascination with those who are rich and therefore famous. And in the 80s and 90s, if you've been around long enough, you might remember a show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Money gives us this illusion of importance and security and control. So we're tempted to think that life really is found in stuff. And the more we have, the stronger that illusion becomes. We're among the richest people who have ever walked the earth, and yet we're also among the most anxious and depressed. Could there possibly be a connection between those two things? We know money won't make us happy, but we all want to find out for ourselves, right? And we have a lot of resources around here to find out, to experiment. So we keep chasing the next thing, but we keep finding it empty. And here's Jesus telling us, this is not where life is found. Life equals possessions is a lie. So what is the truth? Throughout his word, the Lord makes it clear where life is found. 
If you think about Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. John 1, 4, in him was life. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. John 17, 3, when Jesus is praying to the Father, and therefore to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So brothers, life is found in knowing Jesus, living for him, and helping others find life in him. So this man comes up to Jesus hoping that Jesus will be a lawyer to settle his dispute. But he finds out that Jesus is a doctor who has x-ray vision, and Jesus sees right through him to his clogged heart that doesn't beat for God. Now for Jesus to settle this dispute and not speak to his heart would basically be leaving this guy for dead. And so Jesus goes on to tell this parable in hopes of saving this man's life. What a wonderful, powerful way to teach. So after talking about the source of life, Jesus gets into what I'll call the heart of folly. That's really what the parable is about. So let's quickly walk through the parable, and then we'll dive deeper. So verse 16 sets the scene. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. Notice, Jesus doesn't ascribe the man's success to his hard work or brilliance. It's from the bounty of the land, the Lord blessed this man with an abundance. And then in verse 17, the rich man frames the problem of his life. It says, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. So from his perspective, he has a storage problem. Too many crops, not enough barns. And, and start to notice all the first person language the man uses. Jesus is painting a picture of a man who's thinking and deciding and dreaming by himself. He doesn't have any counselors. He's living by himself. He's living for himself. Then in verse 18, the man comes up with his solution to the problem. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. So the man decides to build bigger barns so he can store all that's his. They're his crops and his barns, so naturally he needs more room. And then in verse 19, the man dreams of the good life he will enjoy. He says, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So the man's picture of the good life is an early self-indulgent retirement. He won't have to work anymore. He can just relax, eat, drink, have fun. It's interesting to think that in 2,000 years, the popular vision of the good life hasn't changed that much, has it? So in verse 20, God interrupts. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? The interruption was shocking for the rich man. It's shocking for us too. And Jesus intended that. He didn't mind shocking and offending his audience. But this isn't like the media in 2021. Jesus isn't shocking and offensive just to get clicks and followers. He's shocking and offensive because he loves us. And he wants to save us from lies and death and bring us into truth and real life. And 2,000 years later, his spirit can use this story to do just that in our lives today. Now, it's helpful to see these glimpses of how the rich man is thinking or making decisions, but it's more helpful to find the root of all that. 
And this is true in all of our lives. We think we have a problem with greed or pornography or anger or fear or doubt. But what's the root? What's the heart of it? Until we get to the root of the problem, we're like a crazy person mopping the floor while the bathtub is still overflowing and the drain is still in. We don't realize we have to turn off the water and drain the tub before we can begin to address the water on the floor. So if we don't get to the root of the problem, we will never experience real change. We'll just be mopping up messes. So God calls the rich man a fool. What is the heart of that? What is the heart of folly? How does this story illustrate it? Well, think about this. Why do we ever tell someone that was foolish? Well, it's when they do something that's out of touch with reality. You know, don't play in the middle of the highway. That's foolish because of the reality of cars. Don't jump out of an airplane without a parachute. That's foolish because of the reality of gravity. And don't live your life like this life and these things we have is all there is. That's foolish because of the reality of God. In Psalm 14:1, we read, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So that's it. That's the heart of folly. It's the fool's heart which says there is no God. The fool is out of touch with ultimate reality. To the fool, God doesn't exist. Or if he exists, he doesn't really matter. He doesn't really affect my day to day. Have you ever made it to the end of, day, of the day and realized, wow, Lord, I didn't think about you one time today. I lived like you don't exist. So it's this actual or at least functional atheism. That's the root problem. And just before our passage, Jesus has been teaching the crowds a couple things. One, he's been teaching them about fearing the Lord. And two, he's been teaching them about acknowledging him before men. So if God exists and he's the most glorious being in the universe, then the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Seeing him as the biggest thing in life. He's the one with whom we have to deal. To acknowledge him and to live in light of him is wisdom. To deny him and to live like he doesn't exist is the definition of folly. We don't hear God calling the rich man a fool until the very end of the story, but the fruits of his folly are scattered throughout the parable. So I want to show them to you, but I want you to imagine that you are the rich man. Just imagine we're having a conversation and you're the rich man and I'm a friend who loves you and I want to help you see something a little different. So let's talk verse by verse. Verse 16. Brother, your land has produced plentifully. Your business is booming. You're just trying to figure out how to keep up with it. But you seem more anxious than grateful. Have you thought to thank God for the land, for the seeds, for the rain, for the harvest? Do you know that he's the one who actually gives you power to make wealth. He's the giver of all good gifts, but he's strangely absent from your story. I'm happy that you've had a good year, but without the Lord, you are going to fail the test of prosperity that's coming. Remember that one of the wisest and richest men wrote this in Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Verse 17. Well, friend, it sounds like you have a storage problem. You have more crops than barns, 
and you need to figure out what to do with the excess. But may I humbly submit that perhaps you're blind to other ways to frame this problem. I know you could build bigger barns, but should you? This is a big decision, and it's troubling to me that you're not consulting anyone else. What if the Lord has blessed you to be a blessing to others? You have neighbors whose crops were ruined this year. Could you share with them? There are poor people around you who have no crops and no land. Could you share with them? There are churches who could use your excess to bring the gospel to the lost. What if God has given you enough for you and he's entrusted you with the rest to be a blessing to others? You think you have a storage problem, but you really have a spiritual problem. Verse 18, well, I can't help but notice that you're the main character in your story. You're thinking to yourself, you're talking to yourself, you're deciding for yourself. You say, my crops, my barns, my grain, my goods. I know it sounds harsh, but mine is one of the ugliest words in our language. You think it's all yours, that you're the owner, but the earth is the Lord's and we are his. He created us and it's his desire to save us and give us life in him. And we think we're owners, but God sees us as stewards. And the question is, how will we respond to his generosity? Verse 19, friend, your vision of the good life is an early retirement. That's all about you. That's what I'm hearing. You look forward to doing whatever you want or maybe just doing nothing at all. As nice as that sounds, I want to push back. These are the years when you have the most to offer the world. You have more resources, you have more time, you have more experience. Do you really think this self-indulgent life is going to satisfy? Do you really want to prepare to enter eternity like that? And finally, verse 20, brother, when you approach life like this, God calls you a fool. Can you not see the irony? You think you've been talking to yourself, but God has heard every word. You think you'll live for years and years, but these are your last hours on earth. You think you can keep all this stuff for yourself, but you will leave it all behind. And you haven't given one serious thought to your relationship with God, and now you have to answer to him. You've lived like you're the Lord, you're the owner of your life, but your life has been on loan this whole time, and now that loan is due. Rich man, you have chosen counterfeit riches over the riches of Christ, and that, in God's eyes, is foolish. So friends, Jesus tells this dramatic story, and I dramatize it to try to help us feel it a little bit more because The reality behind the story is more dramatic than we can imagine. In the parable, the rich man seems to run out of time. But we are here today, and that means the Lord has given us time to turn to him. Jesus ends the parable by saying, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In other words, we will be like the rich man unless we figure out how to be rich toward God. So what is the path to real riches? What does it mean to be rich toward God? Now, the path to real riches is a path of repentance. It's turning from something and turning to something or to someone, to Jesus. So you can probably trace it through what we've already said, but let me outline it for you. 
We need to turn from folly to faith. We can't make it through life in this echo chamber of our own thoughts. As guys, we try to do that, but we need counselors who will speak the truth and point us to Christ. That's why it's so good to be here today, studying God's word with friends. We need to see that our deepest problem is a spiritual one, and only Jesus can solve the problem of our sin. He lived, died, and rose again to save us from ourselves and unite us with him. We need to trust and turn to him to be our Lord, our Savior, our treasure, our counselor. Are we building our life on Christ alone? Are we seeking to walk by faith? That's the first turn. And then as we make that turn, we also turn from finding life in possessions to finding life in Jesus. We need the Lord again to open our eyes so that we can see possessions will never give us life. Jesus is life. Leaving possessions to our family will not give them life. For us and our children and our grandchildren, what legacy do we want to leave? Is it going to be greed or generosity? Is it going to be taking all that we can or trusting the Lord? Is it going to be a legacy of abundant possessions or abundant life in Christ? When we find our life in Jesus, we can begin to relate to possessions differently because we don't need as much. We can live simply and we can give freely because now we have the greatest treasure already and no one and nothing can take that away from us. So when we find life in Jesus, we, be, we can begin to turn from being rich toward ourselves to being rich towards God. Now we open with an inheritance story from a John Grisham novel. I want to close with an inheritance story from history. Now he was born in 1887, William Borden. He was the heir to the Borden Dairy Estate. He was already a millionaire as a teenager, which probably would be a billionaire now. Uh, for his high school graduation present, his parents sent him on a trip around the world. So imagine the 16-year-old billionaire, William Borden, traveling through Asia and the Middle East and Europe. But as he travels, it doesn't quite go the way his parents expected because his heart starts to break for the hurting people of the world. So finally, William writes home and says, I'm going to give my life to prepare for the mission field. Who knows what his parents might have said, but one friend wondered why he was throwing himself away as a missionary. So to prepare himself for missions, uh, Borden went to Yale and then to Princeton Theological Seminary. He felt this calling to go and be a missionary to Muslims in China. So he needed language training and he decided to go to Cairo in Egypt for language training before eventually making his way to China. And while he's training in Cairo, William Borden contracts spinal meningitis and he dies in Egypt at the age of 25, never making it to China. Now, brothers, <laughs> what do we do with this story? Is this a tragedy or is this something else? As we see a man who was rich in this world, who sort of turned his back on it to pursue riches, real riches in Christ. Now, this only happens when we know how rich Jesus has been toward us. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So Jesus is the ultimate example 
of forsaking his riches that he might pursue us. Uh, he became poor so that we might become rich in him. Do you know these riches in Christ? Are these riches more captivating to you than money and clothes and stocks and cars and toys and houses? It's not natural for that to be the case. But that's the power of God's grace in our lives. The Lord changes the whole equation. And now our resources are not just things for us to enjoy and use for ourselves, but everything we have is a gift from him to be used for his glory. And we get to follow him in this life of sacrificial love, of giving and giving and giving, because it's more blessed to give than to receive. And this life makes us look like fools to the world, but this is the wisdom of God. And this is why Christ looked like a fool to people. And yet he was the very wisdom of God. So it's the rich, rich fool story that's tragic. William Borden's story is not tragic. It's glorious. It's encouraging us even today. Do you believe this? Now Borden is buried in the American cemetery in Cairo. And there's this phrase on his tombstone that I'll never forget. It says, apart from faith in Christ... There is no explanation for such a life. See, it's not hard to explain the rich fool's life. He walked such a well-traveled path. So many people go down that road. But if we're in Christ, shouldn't it be hard for the world to explain our life? Apart from faith in, faith in Christ, there should be no explanation for the way we're living. Because we know the riches of God. So in our particular place where the Lord has called us, what would it look like for us to be rich toward God? That the world might see something different, that they might see Christ in us. And you know, we don't have to get our fair share in this life. If you think about it, what if Jesus had gotten his fair share? The whole story of the gospel is Jesus getting what he didn't deserve so that we could get what we don't deserve which is grace and a relationship with him. And you think about it, in, in Christ, we have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, no matter what comes to us in this life. Another missionary, Jim Elliott, said it this way. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What would our lives look like if we really believed that we are rich in Christ? Let's pray together. Father, help us now as we seek to apply your word to our lives. Pray that you would convince us again that life is not found in our possessions, but in Jesus. Would you kindly reveal the folly of our hearts and give us wisdom to turn to Christ? Lord, you are our hope. So please don't let us hope and put our hope in the uncertainty of riches. Help us to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. You have been so rich towards us. Show us what it means to be rich towards you, to store up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future so that we may take a hold of that which is truly life. For we pray in the name of our real treasure, Jesus Christ. Amen.